This is the Jeff Merrick Show on the Sportsnet Radio Network. So here's my latest fascination, and here's one of the questions I'll be chasing until we get some type of satisfactory answer, knowing Phil full well will probably not get a satisfactory answer, although I might be wrong. Why did Paul Maurice do it? We're going to get to the game, 7-2 final. Vegas looked fantastic heading to sunrise now. Game three on Thursday, extra day off. But what I'm talking about here is at the end of the game, and I threw up a screen cap of this. Let me grab this. At the end of the game last night, there's eight seconds left. It's the final draw. And Paul Maurice, who, look, we know he's had a hard time with the officials, and we know he had a hard time with the officials last night, and he probably had a hard time with the officials yesterday after watching Kachuk get tossed and Fitzgerald get the misconduct and Declare with the misconduct and Eric Stahl getting chucked and Cousins with the misconduct and Sam Reinhardt with the misconduct as well. A lot of these are offsetting, by the way, but nonetheless, the point is... Um, Yesterday for that final draw, (laughs) Paul Maurice threw out five defensemen. Paul Maurice threw out five defensemen. Brandon Montour ended up taking the final faceoff, and he was flanked by Mark Stahl, Aaron Ekblad, Josh Mahura, and Gustav Forsling. Now, we've seen five forwards on a power play, but have we ever seen five defensemen? On a shift, five defensemen on a draw. Well, we saw it last night. I have my theories. Maybe you have yours. Maybe Matt Marchese has his as well. Shannon Goldman's going to stop by from The Athletic in a couple of moments. uh, Elliot is traveling today. He'll be back tomorrow. Maybe Shana has a thought on why Paul Maurice did this one. Matt Marchese, do you have a theory, a thought, a feeling about what Paul Maurice did at the end of the game last night? Five defensemen on the ice. Well, the first thing that came to mind when I saw that you posted that was that seems like something Roger Nielsen would do. That was the first thing that came to my <laughs> mind. And then and then the second thing was yeah, that it was point. it was it was like an admission of I have nobody left on my bench here. I'm just here, here guy who wants to ah. go on the ice? Oh, five defensemen put up their hands. Okay, off you go. It was like house league hockey. Yeah. Okay, so here's that that sort of winks at the theory that I have here. And again, I don't know if this is true. Uh, I'm sure someone's going to ask Paul Maurice this at the next media avail as we continue to try to make it an issue here on the radio show and uh, and online as well. I don't know if Paul's going to give you a straight answer, a funny answer. Maybe that'll have to come after the uh, after the Stanley Cup final is done. But here's my theory. And this is from knowing... Listen, I uh, I worked... In the same organization, like I, I did, Mar- I shouldn't say I worked in the same organization because I was working for 640 at the time. Um, but I was doing Marley's games in 0506 with John Bartlett. I've mentioned that before. Bart's came over from the Barry Colts, and I was doing Leafs Lunch with Bill Waters. And we got together, and we were the original play by play and color crew for the Marley's of the AHL. When they moved from St. John's to Toronto, Paul Maurice was the head coach. So I got to know Paul a little bit then. Um, and knowing Paul, mainly from afar through the years uh, through the National Hockey League. Here's my thoughts. You can call this an educated guess. How about that, Maddie? This is an educated guess at what I think Paul Maurice was doing yesterday. So I ran out. Oh, hang on. Hang on a second here. 
Hang on, I'm getting a quick update from... Uh, I got t- 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 Brent Sutter threw out 5D on the power play in 2010 with the Flames, trying to send a message to his regulars. That's from Logan over at 960. Okay, so Brent Sutter has done that before. So I don't know if this was a message to the forwards. I don't know if this was a message to the forwards on the Florida Panthers as much as it might have been a message to the officials essentially saying, I've got no forwards left. This is what you've done to me. This is what I'm going to do here. I've got no forwards left on the draw, so I'm just going to fire five defensemen out there. Ala to Logan's point at 960. Brent Sutter back in 2010. Does that make sense to you? That's the only thing I can think of. My my only my only thing is is that the game is lost at that point, right? Like it's it's over. It's and oh, game's I, over. I yeah, and and that's why I'm I'm. Uh, I think for I think for Paul Maurice, I think it was more a. You know, because like you said, he's he's had his issues with the officials in these playoffs. I think it was more of a wink to yeah. look what you've done. Look at the mess that you have created. This is what I have to. This that's is what, what I have to do. But that's yeah. what I'm. That, that's what I'm saying. I've run out of forwards. You've thrown them all out of the game, and all I've yeah. got left is you know uh, defensemen. So five of them are going to take the uh, take the yeah. final draw here. Okay, I don't want to make a whole opening segment here. The the whole A block about. Um, the five defensemen taking the draw. I just wanted to mention it in passing as, as something that was noteworthy from last night. Um, also noteworthy from last night was the 7-2 final and how we all got there. And along the way, it was it was a combination of skill and it was a combination of violence. And it was a combination of being wowed and also holding your breath and hoping that people are okay. Uh, we still don't have an update, to my knowledge, unless there's been one in the last 20 minutes, on Radko Gudis. Uh, Radko Gudis, sometimes your bull gets gored. And last night, Florida's bull got gored. Um, we've talked a lot about Ivan Barbashev. Uh, I still think he was the best trade deadline acquisition that any team made. There were some good ones. And I will hear evidence from Oilers fans saying Matthias Ekholm. I will also entertain Dallas Stars fans saying Max Domi. Um, but for my money, Ivan Barbashev was the best. Um, and he picked up points last night and also laid out Radko Gudis. He took care of Shrek. Took care of Shrek early in the game as Gudis went to uh, hit Barbashev. Barbashev dropped a shoulder into him. Was there head contact? Yes. Nonetheless, Gudis is, uh, didn't return for the game, uh, the rest of the game yesterday and is very much a question mark, I would imagine, for the rest of the game, there was, uh, for the rest of the series. There was also the Matthew Kachuk hit on Jack Eichel. I can't believe that Eichel came back the next period and made a gorgeous play on the Jonathan Marcheseau second goal of the game. It was absolute beauty. Um, what stood out for you last night, Maddie? Those were a couple of uh, of things right away, and I guess it was fort- fortuitous for the Florida Panthers that they went eleven and seven last night, considering they needed the the extra defender after Gudis got schmucked by Barbashev. Yeah, just just on the Gudis thing, that kind of reminded me, like that type of loss reminded me of Tampa Bay losing Eric Chernak in the first round against the Leafs. Not a guy that gets heralded mm. for his offensive play or anything like that, but just like look at how look at how Vegas kind of just took advantage of the fact that Gudis wasn't there clearing out bodies in front of the net because Bobrovsky had a hell of a time last night trying to see much of anything. And you could say the same for, for Alex Lyon afterwards, but I feel like that is, yep. and, and it's been, it's been very well documented. Radko Gudis's effect in these playoffs. I, it's going to be a huge loss, but that's kind of what I thought about the, the thing that really has stuck out to me is the play of Aiden Hill. 
And I know that early on, Florida was being manhandled by Vegas. Like in that first five, six, seven minutes, it was like, oh boy, they're just getting came oh, in here. It was it was not Vegas pretty. Vegas came out hammering guys last night. Vegas came out just hammering everything that moved last night. Yeah, and and so you're like, okay, how is this going to be for a goalie who's maybe not going to get a ton of work, especially early? And and he eventually did with one of the power plays, but he's Aiden Hill is doing his best Sergey Bobrovsky impression. He's been, you know, for my money, <laughs> and and I said I said yeah. this. I can't remember. I can't remember who I said this to, but we were talking about Conn Smythe Trophy winners, and I was like, I, we can't discount what Aiden Hill's done. I know he didn't start the playoffs, and he came in a little bit later, but he he if he outduels whoever's in net for you know for for Florida, I think we're having a conversation. I know Marshall's in there, and certainly Jack Eichel. But man, Michael. Aiden Hill has been really, really good. And even that visual of him leaning on the crossbar as they're skating the puck out mm. of the zone, that that to me shows where his mentality's at right now. And he's just absolutely dialed in. Quick note on Aiden Hill. When we were in Vegas last week, uh, me, Elliot, and Amel, we had a chance to, we didn't interview Aiden Hill, Dave Amber did, but we uh, had a chance to talk to him afterwards. And uh, uh, Amber asked him something about superstitions, and uh, he's, he said that he really wasn't superstitious. But he did mention to Elliot and I afterwards that, because we asked him about um, pregame naps. I can't remember how we got on the topic, but we asked him about, about pregame naps, and he said he never does it. That might be his only superstition, that he doesn't do the pregame nap. And he said he tried it once this year. It was a game. It was before a game against Anaheim, and normally he never naps, but he uh, he had a nap and he got shelled that night, and he was awful. It threw off his rhythm of the day, all of it, and he ended up getting pulled. It was a Vegas Anaheim game earlier in the season, and ever since then he's just reaffirmed, like, yeah, that's it. I'll, I'm I'm never taking a pregame nap. Like Maddie, I know players like retired players to this day who still have afternoon naps. That has just become yep. so much of their routine. Um, but Aiden Hill, no nap. He's the uh, yeah. the no nap guy. Um, yeah, there, that was there are plenty of broadcasters that do that too, Jeff. Uh, no, I know. And you know what? If I was smarter, I'd probably do that too. Instead of just staying up and, and burning all day long, I'd have a an afternoon nap as well. Um, okay, so you know the the other thing about Vegas here, I'm going to get Shannon Goldman aboard, and we'll we'll talk more about the Vegas Golden Knights and what they've been able to do to the Florida Panthers. And I understand that, that rest versus rust, and we're seeing more rust than rest here from the Florida Panthers because they do seem a step slower um, than the Vegas Golden Knights who've just come out flying. thing about Vegas this year is in the playoffs, this has been a team that absolutely wrecks goaltenders, right? Going into the series against Winnipeg, oh, you know what, Connor, uh, 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 Winnipeg's. Well, I'm blanking here. Uh, Connor Hellebuck. I can't believe that I'm blanking. Connor Hellebuck. Connor Hellebuck is going to be the the uh, the the big equalizer here for the Winnipeg Jets. Connor Hellebuck is going to steal the series for the Winnipeg Jets. Vegas wrecks him, like absolutely wrecks him. Second round, Stuart Skinner. Oh, you know what? Rookie of the year candidate, Stu Skinner has been the guy for the Edmonton Oilers. Vegas wrecks him. Jake Ottinger, Dallas Stars. Oh, don't worry. We all saw what Jake Ottinger did last season uh, against the Calgary Flames. A great season again for Jake Ottinger. He's going to be the equalizer here. Vegas just wrecks him. And then this 
round. Florida Panthers. Sergey Bobrovsky pulled last night. Vegas wrecking another goaltender. That is what this team has done. That's what this team continues to do. Uh, with that, we'll bring on Shannon Goldman. Uh, you've heard her on this program numerous times. Uh, you can also hear her on the Too Many Men podcast, read her at The Athletic. Shana, how are you today? You're in the, as you call it, the bestie spot. Hey, I'm great. I know we're one step closer. Like, we're just kicking Elliot off at this point. We're one step closer to the podcast everyone's been waiting for. Too many thoughts. Like, we're manifesting it. <laughs> that would be all yours. By the way, I just blanked on Connor Hellebuck's name, so I'm not long for the industry here. I'm trying to remember who the Winnipeg, Jet, Winnipeg Jets netminder was. So all those thoughts will be yours. I try to remember. Uh, is Daniel Berthiome still playing with Winnipeg? Maybe it's Pokey Redick. Uh, who is the goaltender now for the Winnipeg Jets? Well, just, just trying to make the point there a, a second ago, Shana, that you know the one thing that we've seen with Vegas so far this, this, uh, this playoff is they're ruining goalies. Like, they started off with Hellebuck, wrecked him. Went to Stu Skinner, wrecked him. Went to Jake Ottinger, Dallas, wrecked him. Got to Sergei Bobrovsky, he gets pulled, and we saw Alex Lyon wrecking Sergei Bobrovsky. When you look at Vegas and you look what they've been able to do to goaltenders specifically, what goes through your mind? I do think that they're hurting goalies, but I also feel like to a point they're getting them at the right time. Like, with Connor Hellenbuck, you're getting a goalie who has played a lot of hockey. He plays a lot of hockey every year, usually among the top mm. goalies in games played. And there's that fatigue factor. And there's also the factor of the team in front of him has a tendency to turn into a tire fire and have zero accountability for it. So I don't fault him entirely. You go on to the next round, you have Stuart Skinner. Mm. For some reason, the ghost of Mike Smith just likes to haunt every goalie that's entered the net since he has, or a goalie that opposes him, <laughs> and that happened. But also yeah. you have like a young goalie with an expanded workload. Like I do wonder if that was a factor too, or if Vegas, the pressure was too much. And then Jake Ottinger too. We saw him starting to slip against Seattle. He goes, has one quality start in that series altogether. So it felt like the right time for him to walk into that matchup. And Vegas just knows how to take the opportunity and run with it. And Bobrovsky, too, the last game against Carolina was his worst game of the playoffs. Um, I'm sorry, of that series. It was his most average game of the playoffs since he got hot because he did have a game against Boston that was pretty bad before that. But it just feels like any time that there's one ounce of weakness in net, Vegas is the team that's going to take advantage of it. You see, with, with Bobrovsky, though, the, the, the one bonus that we thought was going to be, I, I, I worried about the skaters with all the, the layoff. And, and a lot of that comes from, you know, what we saw back in 2007 in the Anaheim-Ottawa series. Now, I, I, I go down and, and still maintain that that Ottawa Senators team, that era of Ottawa Senators team, was, the, was one of the best teams to never win the Stanley Cup. Like, they were that good. And between the conference final victory and the beginning of the Stanley Cup, like they were off for almost two weeks. And, you know, we, we wondered how that would affect them in the, in the series against the Anaheim Ducks. And it did. Like they came out and they had nothing. And the Ducks were all over them. And it absolutely drove players like Daniel Alfredson to distraction. We think about, you know, the slap shot at Scott Niedermeyer. Uh, at the end of the period, and Niedermeyer saying to the to his team, we they're frustrated. They got no legs. Uh, we have them exactly where they where we want them. So I I worry about too much rest for skaters. But the thing about Bobrovsky is that's when he's at his best. Is when he's like super well rested. He doesn't do well with a heavy workload. Um, he, he's not someone that's going to play like, you know, three out of, of four games in a week. That's not going to be Sergei Bobrovsky. So I thought that the, the rest would be awesome for him. Instead, 
Vegas has, you know, gone about picking him apart. And I can't help but wondering if, you know, so much of what Vegas does offensively is try to take away the goalie's eyes. Um, Kelly Broody talks about this on Hockey Night all the time, about taking eyes away and how Vegas is able to do that uh, to just about every goaltender that they've faced. And they're doing it against the Florida Panthers as well. And, you know, you see goalies try to look around or try to look over, I guess, is the new way to do it. Um, players in front, you know, they, they've figured out how to, how to get in front, how to stay there. They're tough to move. Um, they're, they're real active in front of Sergei Bobrovsky and it's just wrecking him right now. Like he looks like that Bobrovsky that we said, wow, man, why do you pay your goalie $10 million? I thought the rest was going to help Bobrovsky agree or disagree. Cause I'm, I'm stunned at what they've been able to do to him. Yeah. I thought the rest was going to help too, because we even saw that between rounds two and three, the Panthers had more rest than a lot of other teams and they were just fine because it was what was going to stop Bobrovsky from getting to that point that we all started to get worried about. It's those, oh, he's playing, you know, eight games in this many days. And all of us, I think, had that red flag up of, can he keep this up? Is this sustainable? Well, what we know about him is it's probably not because of this workload. And here was like your magic key. But, you know, 10, 11 days is a long time still. It felt like maybe that happy medium is somewhere around six days. Let him rest. Let him keep working out how he needs. And maybe it pushed too far. But the point you made about, what Vegas does to goalies, I think is the key of it all because we can look at things like expected goals that nerds like us, you know, we do all the time. And we're going to see that the danger of the shots and how we respond to the workload that he faced wasn't very good last night. And it wasn't great in game one. It was just about, you know, slightly above average, which it wasn't great, but he wasn't the biggest difference maker last night. He kind of came apart at the seams, but what we're not measuring in in expected goals is the position of other players on the ice. We can't tell you that he's being screened mm. and that Vegas knows how to get the, you know, a player in the perfect position to take away his eyes, which is exactly what we saw happen last night. So along with you know, the danger of the shots, we know I think it, he faced four high-danger shots according to Natural Statric and allowed two high-danger goals against on them. We also have to look at the other two goals plus those you know, danger shots plus the screens. It makes the shots all the more dangerous. So they're figuring that out, mm. and now the onus is going to be on Florida's defense The biggest weakness we know that they have of all is their defense, especially without Gudis in the mix. You take out a good, solid, you know, mainstay defenseman, that's going to be a problem. And it just got all the more challenging for Florida to now figure out how best to protect their goalie's eyes so he can be at least average for them. Um, speaking of defensemen, I, I opened up with this one, and it's kind of a, I don't know what Paul Maurice was thinking, so let's all just throw our theories out there and, and, and see what sticks against the wall. Um, as Logan at 960 uh, mentioned to me, you know, Brent Sutter did this back in 2010, but it's very jarring almost when you see it. Um, the last face-off last night, okay, it's in Vegas's end. Brandon Montour takes the draw, and he's flanked by Stahl, Ekblad, Mahura, and Forsling. Yes, there are five defensemen on the ice for the Florida Panthers last night. My own personal theory on it is that's Paul Maurice's message to the officials that, look, you've thrown out all my forwards, and this is all that I'm left with. I thought that was a message from Maurice to the officials. I don't know if that's true, but that's what I'm working with. Do you have a thought on why Paul Maurice would have done that last night? I think you're on the right track there because he could have had a message to the officials like, hey, I have no forwards left. Thank you very much for that. Thank you for your lopsided officiating, which we know every coach feels is always against them. 
he might be saying to his forwards, like, hey, you need to step up and give some goal support, but who among us is left on the ice to do it? It, it could have just been something to make some chaos and distract attention away, too. It feels like Maurice is a good coach at understanding when to take the pressure off his team and when to put it on and when to take the heat so his team doesn't face as many questions and then he can kind of deflect it away as well. So if he makes that the story a little mm. bit more and tries to do subtle things like that, I don't think it hurts either. Uh, you mentioned Gudis a couple of seconds ago, and he met with Ivan Barbashev last night. Anthony DeClaire, uh, you know, got the uh, the Peter Forsberg, the uh, the cold shoulder, the bump back, however you want to refer to it. Um, he got the the bump back from uh, from Ivan Barbashev yesterday uh, as well. Um, and DeClaire kind of went a little snappy and ended up with a ten minute misconduct uh, chasing Barbashev after that. Um, I maintain that, and it, uh, not right around when it happened, but I remember when when uh, Kelly McCrimmon made the trade, picking up Barbashev from St. Louis. I remember thinking to myself, that's a really good, solid playoff deal. And as the playoffs have rolled along, I've kind of looked at it now and I've said, that might have been the best trade deadline acquisition that anybody made. Like, Orloff was really good for Boston. Domi was really good for Dallas. Uh, Bertuzzi was good for, uh, for for Boston as well. Matthias Ekholm, excellent for the Edmonton Oilers. But for my money, Ivan Barbashev, when you look at it now, uh, may have been the best trade deadline acquisition that anybody made. And he was one of the stars last night. He was exceptional. He just plays with so much intensity. And he's he can score. He can make plays. He's physical. He's not shy about dropping, you know, Gudis and Declare. Uh, do you have a thought on, on Ivan Barbashev? And, and are you Team Merrick on this one, that he's the best trade de- deadline acquisition that any team made this year? I can't say. He, I think he's a top one. I, I can't say... Right now, he's the best I would need to do some studying and, and really, like, start ranking him, which is so hard to do. But he's a top deadline acquisition. He's one that's kind of interesting to me because he felt like the player that was going to get overpaid for. You know, here's someone, a depth piece. You know, we think of, like, the, the Tampa Bay Lightning third line, right? We all go back to that when we talk about depth players in the playoffs and, and the importance of them and finding your own version of that. And Barbershop did feel like that. And it felt like that was the money you know, and the, the return was just going to be too high for a player of his value, which is super valuable. He's versatile. He's a good four checker. He can play center. He can play wing. He can add a lot to your lineup. I love the idea of just mm-hmm. bulking up on positional flexibility because you give yourself all the options in the world with your lineup. And he's someone that you know you can put on a third line and he can, he can handle that role and kind of lead the way, or he can be a good complimentary piece on a top line without weighing them down, just throwing him there for defensive presence and, he brings nothing to the table. Like, he has more than that. So he's someone that is such a good player who is at a reasonable cap hit. And the fact that there was so much more going on at the deadline and I think more pieces available than we saw coming, like the Orlov trade, like the Bertuzzi trade, that it kind of took away from that potential overpayment that it felt like he was going to get. And it made that trade even better for Vegas, especially considering the fact that they're a team that's going to jump at the opportunity to overspend. We know that. The fact that they could rein it in and say, mm. this is what we need and that's it, was super smart. And obviously, their hands were a bit tied, but still. So what he's done with Vegas, I'm super impressed by. And I'm also, I give a lot of credit to Bruce Cassidy knowing to stick with that combination because in the regular season to end it, Barbashev, Marcheseau, and Eichel were good. They had the results. But below the surface, they were just okay defensively and just okay offensively. 
But in the playoffs, they turned it on. So it was it was a good decision to keep them together and hope that they figure everything out below the surface to support the results. So it was more sustainable, and mm-hmm. they absolutely have. I think they're outscoring opponents fourteen to four now at five on five when they're on the ice. Is that good? I I, I think so. <laughs> last last time I checked. Speaking of checked, okay, so we have our answer. So as we were talking about Paul Maurice, uh, he was asked about five um, uh, D at the uh, at the end of the uh, at the end of the game, and he said this. Well, when you've gotten to a point that I was running the forwards every second shift and I didn't want to, so we had two or three defensemen that were fresh at the time. There was seven seconds left on the clock. Is that sufficient oh, yeah, answer too. for you? I mean, you're running five defensemen, though, when it, it, it's tough because he his bench got shortened. He had seven defensemen. It got shortened to six. Then he loses one when Casey Fitzgerald got the penalty at the end, too. So the defensemen, were they truly fresh? Uh, I think that's a little bit of a stretch there. But considering the fact that all the forwards were, you know, thrown out by the end of the game, I guess you can say that comparatively that they were fresh for those last few minutes, sure. But I still think you, you have you know, something a little bit more there, but he didn't want to, I guess, take the fine and get too spicy. Hmm. I wonder if that's a real answer, if that was a message. But nonetheless, uh, Paul Maurice with uh, with the five defensemen on the ice at the end of the game. Uh, hey, what did you, uh, and I'll be, I'll be honest with you, and I've got Pat Parise on coming up in an hour or two, and I'm going to ask Pat about a number of his clients, most notably coming off of last night, Jack Eichel. Um, what did you think when you saw Matthew Kachuk hit him in open ice as he cut to the middle uh, coming out of his own zone? And I'll be honest and I'll be blunt. My first thought was his neck and the artificial disc replacement and this being, you know, the first hit like that that his necks had to withstand. What was your What were your initial thoughts on it? So at first glance, I'm I'm a big believer that legal hits are not necessarily clean hits. And I always go into it like that, like maybe by the rules that was legal, but it wasn't clean. And I really wasn't sure because you just see this huge collision um, at open ice. So it was really tough to tell off the bat. And when he ran off the ice, my thought was his neck too. The second you see the replay, you know, the picture becomes a lot more clear. And there was a slow motion one that really showed yeah. how Eichel toe picked and started going down. Did it? I don't know why that happened. Was it the way he takes off sometimes when you see him try to just transport the puck up the ice and start flying through the neutral zone? He kind of can lean forward to get that momentum. I don't know if that was what was happening or if the topic happened because he was trying to avoid the hit. But either way, it looked really bad in the moment. And the second you saw what happened, if he was straighter, I think it would have been, you know, totally fine if he wasn't leaning over. But like it was just unfortunate timing because he was leaning over. Still, clean hit. Yeah. It was shoulder to shoulder. His head did take some of that, like, whiplash you could see, but that didn't seem like the intention of it. It was because of the situation, and that's what happens with the speed of the game. It didn't feel like it was some illegal hit, anything like that, and it did feel like also it was Kachuk trying to send a message to a team and get them going, which is similar to, like, the Truba hit with Chivo Meyer, but I think – even with that intent of trying to get the team going, I still don't have a problem with it. I just think that it was 
tricky because of what else was going on in the situation, which it's not like Kachuk could see that Eichel was going down. And then there was no, it's too fast to do anything there. It's 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 too fast, and and you're right about the topic, and that's one of the things that I uh, uh, caught on right away because I've gone, I've talked a lot about Eichel's skating style, and I love it because his skating style looks so different than anybody else in the NHL. Um, Colby Armstrong, I remember working with Colby, and he would always point this out. He'd always say, "Look at how Eichel skates," and you see him, and he's got you know, his his back straight and his shoulders back, and he's got his legs like jetting out, like it's really unique style of skating and Colby would always talk about him and compare him to like a velociraptor running he's like look at him he's a velociraptor on ice like that's the way that that Jack Eichel skates and now I'll be honest Shana every time I watch Eichel skate all I can think of is like Jurassic Park because I just see (laughs) velociraptors running like that's that's how Jack Eichel skates and I'm with you like normally you're Matthew Kachuk you 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 know that Eichel's an up you know back straight skater and you're going to catch him in the chest and then he toe picks and goes down I don't know. I just thought the worst, like, right away. Thankfully, he's okay. His neck's okay. It looked bad for his shoulder, that wincing to the bench. And then I was stunned uh, that he started the next period. But, like, what a play to Marcia So for, uh, for Marcia So's second goal. Like, an absolute thing of beauty. And we've talked a lot about, you know, who gets the Consmith Trophy here. If we're voting today, Tuesday, June 6th, at uh, 1229 Eastern, um, my pick is still Jack Eichel. Who's yours? Ooh, that's a tough one. Um, I like the Velociraptor comment, though, on how Eichel skates. And it is funny, I want to mention that. On one of the broadcasts here in the U.S., uh, a couple of weeks ago, they said something like, you know, you don't think of Jack Eichel for his skating. And I'm laughing like, yeah, we do. Yeah, we yes, do. He's do. one of the best players in transition. <laughs> totally. It's before the surgery at Buffalo, watch him drive play up the ice. He's doing it at Vegas. And then in the postseason, like, no one's near him in zone entries. He's so good. He, I feel like he's an offensive zone quarterback, yeah. the way he's directing play, the way he comes into the zone. Yeah. And even if he's not passing, it's the way he's positioning himself and keeping himself open and opening up his teammates just with his positioning alone. It's so smart. But I'm really torn on whether it should go to Eichel because I think March so wouldn't be nearly as effective without him, or if it should just go to March so because he does have the finish. It feels like March is the guy that would get it because he's the scoring and the pop, and that's what we all care about versus all the things that go into the goals. I think it's a right answer either way, but I also could see it if Eichel gets the con smite, then March so is definitely the guy that's picking up that cup second. So it's kind of a trade off. Which would you be happier mm. with? You know, where do you throw Aiden Hill in that conversation? Um, that's a tough one. I think the fact that he didn't play the whole playoffs, it kills him in times my voting off the bat because everyone's going to look at most valuable valuable player of the playoffs. Games played is right up there, right, wrong, or sideways. I just feel like that'll be in the conversation. I think that he's been really important. I think in this series he's been excellent in particular, and it's not – he hasn't had to be like the game stealer every single game, so I'm not sure he would get it. I mean, even if the Panthers won, there's still no guarantee it would be Bobrovsky. We're talking about Kachuk in conversation with him. So I feel like with Hill, if we're not talking about Bobrovsky as the bonafide consummate winner, it can't be Hill. But he should get a nice contract mm-hmm. this summer. And if Vegas is smart, it's going to be from them on what you know his uh, future looks like. Yeah, he he picked. A, I mean, he's a restricted, but all nonetheless, he picked a great time to have this run and have this like time. He's unrestricted. I know, and man, if you're, 
I thought he was a restricted. Let me double check that. I think he's an unrestricted, isn't he? Hang on one second here. Yeah, unrestricted. Golden Knights, Aiden Hill. He is. I apologize. He is a UFA. You're right. Oh, Jerry Johansson, the agent. Start revving up the machine. Start revving up the Brinks truck and 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 back it up to Kelly McCrimmon's front door. Just start loading in bags of loot. You're right. He's a he's an unrestricted free agent. See, I've messed up twice on goaltenders in one conversation. I've, uh, it's okay. I've blanked on a, a Winnipeg goalie and I've blanked on the contract status of Aiden Hill. <laughs> this is why I need you here as my safety nets. It's like, oh, man, Mark, do you know anything about hockey at this point? Jeez, man, you're just wrecking it for yourself. Okay, last question for you, Shanna. Um, are the Florida Panthers done? Like, have you seen no. enough to look at this series and look at how Vegas has 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 just handled Florida, like all areas of the ice? You're saying no, Florida's not done here. I don't think they're done here yet. I think that Game Three is the you know the game breaker of the series. Obviously, I mean, I, hello, Captain Obvious. You go down three nothing. Good luck coming back from that in the Stanley Cup Final. Mm. But it feels like like in Game One, I think Florida was very in the game. And it was really the third period at the end that we saw Vegas pick it up and just crush him, and that was it. This last game, yep. it felt like it got out of hand for Florida, and they didn't have the way to settle themselves down. That's going to be the key. Can Kachuk be the player that they need him to be? He can still have an edge, but that discipline has to be there a little bit more. Like, now it's about everyone rising to the occasion. You pick the matchup, so you can free up the Barkov line a little bit more. You can free up the Kachuk line a little bit more. And maybe try to protect your depth because that's what's really shining for Vegas. It's the four lines all playing very well while you have, you know, the Stahl brothers just completely falling apart in the playoffs, you know, on the fourth line and on defense. And you have Aaron Ekblad struggling. If you can try to shelter him a little bit more, then maybe it could work out for Mm -hmm. you. But if Gudis is hurt and doesn't play, I think that Florida's kind of done. And it shouldn't be a make or break for one player. But when your blue line's as, you know, weak as theirs that one player i think is going to make a huge difference but i i don't think they're done yet i think that they're gonna show a little bit of life in game three and maybe make it a series but it's, it'll all be about how vegas responds then it's the same thing as the dallas series when it started to get away from them they were able to put their foot right back on the gas can they do that i just want to see five defensemen for the opening face-off on thursday that's all i care about come on paul maurice five forward. finished with five defensemen on the ice let's go Oh, I know you love your five forwards. I'll take 5D. That's the difference between you and me. Uh, you're salt on pepper. Here we go. Uh, Shana, thanks as <laughs> always for stopping by. Much appreciated. We'll talk again soon. Thanks for having me. There is she is. Shana Goldman from The Athletic and from the uh, Too Many Men podcast. We are late on time because I'm a bad host. Um, let's hit a break. Come back with Greg Cronin. He is the newly minted head coach of the Anaheim Ducks, Pat Brisson from uh, CAA. Um, super agent, going to stop by an hour or two as well. And Scott Lachlan, co-host of the Morning Skate on NHL Network Radio. And there's your show. Back with the uh, Ducks bench boss, Greg Cronin, in moments. Merrick Show continues across the Sportsnet Radio Network, simulcast on Sportsnet 360 and Sportsnet Now. The best Blue Jays show out there, period. Blair and Barker. Be sure to subscribe and download the show on Apple, Spotify, or wherever you get your podcasts. This is the Jeff Merrick Show on the Sportsnet Radio Network.
Welcome back to the program. I want to thank uh, Shannon Goldman for stopping by from uh, The Athletic and the Too Many Men podcast. Pat Prisson is still to come at the top of the hour. Also, Scott Lachlan from The Morning Skate on NHL Network Radio. Uh, my next guest has been behind a bench in hockey going back to the late 80s and most recently uh, with the Colorado Eagles. He is now the new head coach of the Anaheim Ducks. No stranger to the NHL. No stranger uh, to hockey uh, at all in uh, at a lot of different levels. Uh, please welcome Welcome to the program, Greg Cronin. Greg, first of all, congratulations on getting the Anaheim nod. Thanks so much for doing this today. Yeah, thank you. It's a, it's a blessing to get the job, and I'm thrilled to be back in the NHL. Now, when uh, it's interesting, you know, sometimes it's the first name that you hear who ends up with the job. You know, with with Calgary, the first name we heard was was Conroy. He ended up getting it. You know, last year with with Montreal it was Kent Hughes, and he ended up getting it. Brad Treliving in Toronto. So it's interesting when uh, when when the vacancy occurred in Anaheim, you were I think the first name to sort of pop up, and then it went really really quiet, which uh, from my perch I don't like. Uh, from the, <laughs> but nonetheless, um, you know, I, th- I think you and Pat Verbeek did a really good job of keeping it quiet. But while things were so quiet, what were the talks like? Like, what did Pat Verbeek need to hear from Greg Cronin? Well, Pat had a very specific vision of what he needed to um, be his head coach, particularly with this this multiple waves of newcomers coming through the draft um, the current players that we do have, like the Zegras, is McTavish's Drysdale's and Terry's. Right. So he knew that he had a, uh, have a coach that had an experience in development um, and also had lengthy history coaching. He felt that was going to be one of his prerequisites um, create, you know, culture create, which is a catchy word, but create a culture and an environment where there's some transparency and there's some measurable growth from the players. Um, I've been fortunate in my career to go through a number of stops where that was a component in it going all the way back to the late nineties when Mike Milbury hired me from, um, from when I started the U S national training program, um, mm-hmm. in New York and going all the way back then, the NHL was totally different, but there was an older team with Robert Reichel, Trevor Linden, Ziggy Palfrey, that group. And then, it didn't work, so it, we had to switch gears and go into a development mode, which wasn't even a word back then. It was all about win, win, win. And that group and it was replaced with the Sedano Chars and Timmy Conley's and Taylor Pyatt's. And literally, Mike was the first guy. Everybody has development camps now. Like it's like a tradition now. or yeah. It's a schedule now to go right after the draft, right? So Mike started that. So my roots to that development piece that Pat was looking for go all the way back to, you know, 25 years ago. So I think it was a perfect fit, and we had great conversations, kicking things around, and it just ended up meshing really well. Is there a, um, you know, because I think we always we always look for the, we, we look for links when there are hires. Okay, like, who who's the link between this coach and that general manager? Did they cross over when they played? Was there a coach-player relationship? How does, how does, uh, how does Cronin get to Verbeek? What what has to happen in between? Uh, that's a great question, Jeff. And I, I, if you were to ask me this a year ago, I was just getting ready to do an interview with the Boston Bruins, and that to me, like, and I, and I've asked that same question you asked me probably a hundred times because I've been doing this so long, and I see people that get jobs, and I try and connect the dots, and I don't really know where the dots yeah. started or where they connect. Um, so you know, I, I didn't know Pat. I didn't know him at all. Um, I think ultimately what happens is 
Um, a guy that I worked with was my direct boss in Colorado was Craig Billington. And uh, Craig actually retired a year ago, played a long time in the league, had a lot of stops. He, one of his first stops is in New, New Jersey. Jersey with Pat. Yeah. New Jersey. So that's he, okay that's, Pat, what, okay, that's yeah. what it is. All right. Yeah. So Pat and Craig knew each other and, but you know, with respect for the process, there was no, you know, Dallas has a job and there was no announcement. So it was actually, Craig had told me, I, I think if, if there's a change in Anaheim, you and Pat would mesh really well, even though he's a Western Ontario farmer and I'm a Boston guy. And it's a strange dynamic, but he predicted it, and it, and it and it really meshed well. That is so interesting, Craig Billington being the uh, the the link there. See, I I I spend so much of my time trying to figure out links. Like I, I'm with you, I try to figure out, okay, well, why does this work? How does that work? And you try to you know figure out what the association is. So was there? I'm curious about the interviews as well. I know there's only so far you can go, but w- were there certain things that right away? just clicked with you and, and Pat for Beak, like visions, ideas. I know you're a, you're, like your reputation is you're a great communicator. You develop young athletes very well, uh, and you're a very strong X's and O's coach. Like, what, what were the areas and what were the things that you and Verbeek really clicked on? Well, again, uh, uh, Pat, um, he, he's, he's like laser-focused, okay? And, he's, and I didn't know that until I met him, okay? But people... So Craig was the first guy that talked to me about him. And then, you know, Pat does his homework, and then I do my homework on him. And I get the same feedback from people that he's he's very focused, very intense. He's not a BS guy, um, which I am. I mean, that, that matches what I am. And then uh, he just gave me a couple questions that were broad questions that to me were like umbrella questions that things are going to drop from. And uh, nothing written down. You know, Don Sweeney was a little bit more – uh, methodical in his approach in terms of questions, what he wants sent in, sent in and talking points that would be platforms to the next level of discussions. And I think Pat was, I think he had a plan, but he was spitballing. So when I sat down, we talked about philosophy, which everybody talks about. Okay. And everything, I don't care what you're doing in life starts with your own individual identity. And if it's not honest and authentic, then you're in trouble. That's what I think. People can BS all they want, but eventually somebody's going to sniff them out. So I, I didn't have, an agenda. He did, but it wasn't a, a laser like pointed agenda. It was okay, let's start here and let's see where this goes. It was very organic. I think he had budgeted two hours, and by the time we got up, it was five hours later. Neither one of us had a, a drip, uh, drip wow. of water or, or went to the bathroom. That sounds like a, uh, a very lengthy and thorough conversation. Um, you know, the, the, the one player that I'm, I'm curious about, and my time's limited here, so i got to start going shotgun style with you. The one player that I'm curious about, because I'm looking at the, the, the Anaheim lineup, and I'm like, okay, so where, where's the overlap here? And I stop on Ryan Strom. Now, when you were with the Islanders, he would have been, I'm guessing, 20 years old, maybe mm-hmm. 21 years old. He's almost 30 years old um, now. What was Ryan Strom like? with you and the Islanders? First of all, he's a great, he's a great kid. He's got a great family. I mean, I like his dad. I met his dad. I like Ryan's a, a really quality human being. You can tell he, he, tell he was brought up the right way. And uh, when we had him, um, he's obviously a top 10 pick. He's a talented player. He, he yeah. kind of played on the perimeter. And he played in the perimeter a lot because he was a, he was a skinny, skinny kid and probably wasn't confident with his strength getting to the inside ice. 
And then, but in, in that process, I, I enjoyed him. And he's, he's a coachable kid. I think he's a good teammate. Um, I'm really excited to, to seeing him again and working with him and getting his, uh, his uh, career rebooted. What's, um, well, what are your expectations? Again, we, we still have, you know, draft and free agency to go, and I understand that. But as you look at this Anaheim team right now, we focus a lot on youth, obviously. And, you know, you mentioned a couple of names. You mentioned, you know, Mason McTavish, um, Trevor Zegras. I think we throw Troy Terry into that conversation. You mentioned Jamie Drysdale, uh, Lucas Dostal, the, the net minder of the future there, who might be the net minder of the present. We'll, we'll see what happens uh, by the time the summer is over. But based on the personnel and the key pieces that you see with Anaheim right now, what are the expectations for this Anaheim Ducks team? Well, I think you answered the question when you said there's a lot of movement that's going to take place in the next month with the draft and the free agency. And, you know, I don't go down that rabbit hole with Pat and his scouts, his staff's meticulous in scouting and evaluating, and they're going to put together a – I think they get six, first, six picks in the first three rounds. So I'm sure they're plotting that out, who's capable of playing, you know, in training camp mm-hmm. in 2023 and what, what gets flipped at the free agent time. So – I don't know. Like that, that's gonna. I don't even want to tell you, Jeff, because that could change dramatically in the next month. For sure. My job, um, though, just, I, I just understand to, that. Yeah, my job, though, just to, is to try and create some transparency in what we're doing and, and build a culture that I think can give those guys measurables. Hmm. Um, you've been at this a long time. Um, and I'm, I'm always curious. I mean, you've seen a lot of players, you know, uh, come in and out of the league. Uh, you've seen, well, I think, of one future Hall of Famer that you saw really early in his career when he was very raw, and that's Sedano Chara. And you watched him grow into a leader and a captain and a ch- cup champion and a future Hall of Famer. Um, how have players changed since you started behind the bench? Uh, is, is there a profound difference, or are they, like, are they more similar or more different to young players when you first started? There's a profound difference, and I, I talked to, I've talked to Pat about this because he played in that generation, and you remember that, Jeff, when there was fighting and the fighters were, you know, 230 pounds and there was intimidation and fear was constantly a part of your yeah. development as a player. The honesty and the messaging from the coaches was direct. And it was right between the eyes, and if you didn't like it too bad, there was no emotional band-aids in locker rooms back then. There was a threat of being sent down if you were a tweener and the threat of being benched if, yeah. you, if you're if you an NHL player. So those tools that coaches use to motivate are kind of primitive now. I mean, you can still use them, but you've got to balance them out. I find particularly it was a blessing to go from the Islanders to the American League, which I was at, tw- you know, whatever, 15 years before, to go into Colorado and deal with kids that are really young and then trying to – and I, I, my thing, just to summarize this, is as a head coach now, you have to listen more. You have to listen intently to what the player's mm-hmm. value system is, what their goals are, and then construct a plan that's a, a collaborative plan. You're going to work together for these things. And then I, I, I always, like I said earlier, like it starts with honesty. And I find that kids sometimes aren't honest with themselves. They don't know because social media, they're living up to an image that they might read about. We may not be consistent with what the organization sees. So it's different. It's a, it's a longer process. It's not as direct. 
Do, do you still see, and, and you're right, like that, that, that era where everybody, every team has, you know, three or four sluggers on the bench, like that, that era is gone. Um, but what do you see, and, and maybe the answer is none, I, I don't know, I'm, I'm curious what you think, what do you see the role of, of toughness in the NHL? And I am talking about physical toughness. There's mental toughness, and then there's physical toughness, because as you well know, this Anaheim team has like I'll just be blunt they've had some they've had some rough games against the Arizona Coyotes like that that's like mm-hmm. I circle those as a viewer I circle those games because uh, I know mm-hmm. something's gonna happen and there's no love lost between these these two teams and and these players w- what's the role here for toughness because it seemed as if you know I'll, I'll be blunt the moment that you know uh, Nick Delorier got traded we saw a lot of teams you know take physical advantage of the Anaheim Ducks what's the role of toughness now for you I personally still think it plays a role in the game. Um, I don't think it's as as random and as as um, calculated as it has in the, has been used in the past. I think the, the the tough guy has to be able to play. He can't play two or three minutes and then sit in the bench. I think there's yeah. got to be a role that he plays. My ideal tough guy is Matty Martin, who I had in New York. And I, I actually like mm. Colt Moore quite a bit, too, when he was in Toronto. Colt Moore was a big part of that team that made the playoffs in 2013 when a painful ending there in Boston. But because Colton had a, there's an artwork to hitting like there is an artwork to hitting people. Some people will try to hit people and bounce off the glass and miss them and spin off checks. Colton could hit people and stick them to the wall. Maddie Martin does it well. Then the next evolution of that is what are they doing after they hit the person? Are they getting the puck and valuing possession time and making plays? Because today's fourth line, has to be able to sustain momentum yeah. that the other three lines build. So that's my my that thought is, about that. And yeah, that um, we're we're heavy on time here. I, I I wish I had more, and I'd love to have you back sooner than later. Um, yeah. Listen, Greg, congratulations uh, on getting the gig. Uh, a delight to have you on. Uh, you'll do great things with with Anaheim, no doubt at all. Thanks so much for stopping by today, and uh, enjoy the rest of your day. Enjoy the rest. Enjoy the uh, the draft, the rest of the Stanley Cup playoffs, and and the off season. We'll 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 check back soon. I really appreciate this, Greg. Okay. Okay, Jeff. My pleasure. See you. There he is, Greg Cronin, um, such a delightfully uh, engaging speaker as well and thinker of the game and a really strong X's and O's uh, person. Ah, we're up against the clock. Okay, got to head a break. Uh, thanks to Greg Cronin and the Anaheim Ducks for making him available. Um, thanks so much for stopping by today. Coming up next, Pat Brisson, Merrick Show, Sportsnet Radio Network. Got to go. Diving deep into the biggest stories in Toronto sports and the NFL. The J.D. Bunkus Podcast. Subscribe and download the show on Apple, Spotify, or wherever you get your podcasts. This is the Jeff Merrick Show on the Sportsnet Radio Network. Welcome back to the program. Welcome to Hour 2. And one of the headline stories yesterday was the contract extension, the new deal for Cole Caulfield of the Montreal Canadiens. Uh, eight years, $62.8 million. Habs fans rejoicing over this one. Uh, one of the architects of this, because there's also the Ken Hughes side of it, is uh, Pat Brisson from CAA. He joins me now. We'll talk about a lot of his clients. And yes, we'll get to Eichel. But first, we'll start with uh, Cole Caulfield. Pat, thanks so much for doing this. How are you today? Great, Jeff. How are you doing? 
Uh, I'm doing well. Uh, first of all, congratulations, a belated uh, congratulations on the on the on the Caulfield deal. Um, I'm I'm always curious about relationships between uh, agents and managers doing deals. And in this one, it's unique because, as we all know, Kent Hughes used to be uh, an agent himself. Um, does that change the dynamic at all, or is it just like you're working with? Any other manager who was maybe a hockey player, maybe was a lawyer, mm-hmm. uh, maybe was an agent himself, does the dynamic change at all when you're dealing with someone like Kent Hughes who comes from the agency field? Yeah, it was interesting with Kent, actually. Um, we, uh, we've we been talking for about the last four or, four or five months or so about Cole's contract, and and there were so, so many similarities in terms of our discussions and uh, in terms of our exchanges. Like, uh, you know, can't you remember when you were on this side? Remember, you know, like uh, it was actually uh, uh, joyful to to negotiate with Camp that way because you know at the, we kept talking about it. Like, you know, in fact, we spent more more time maybe uh, discussing the fact that he, you know from his transition from an agent now to 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 management. So. He understood. The, the one good point is he, he can he can relate very very well um, to as of how we uh, have conversations with our client, where we're at. Um, I would say much better than than most because you know he was in that seat for many years. For sure. You know, what, one of the things that I was I was really interested in, and I'd love to hear your thoughts on this one is negotiating a long-term deal right now because you know we're in an uh, era right now where we expect the salary cap to go up you know a million dollars next season but then start to take take some some pretty big leaps and more cap space mm-hmm. opens up um negotiating an eight-year deal i'm guessing has to be tricky because you know where do you put the decimal point knowing that the cap that you're negotiating under right now is going to grow and probably grow significantly here how much of a challenge yeah. does that present to you pat it is challenging you know it's it's timing too because uh we uh, essentially we're negotiating a percentage of the cap you know so our comps we had what five or six players in our comps and, and we all know that yeah currently you know, the cap's at 82.5, it'll be about 83.5, maybe 84. But next year, the following year, it'll be maybe closer to 88, 89. But but what do you do in order to get to that when you have another year to go? I mean, do you sign a one- or two-year deal at that point? And then, uh, and then um, because because essentially, like, Cole burned a year uh, in his last year. He was five years away from free agency, not four so those are all factors, and, uh, you know, there's going to be, in two years from now, or three or less, uh, players in the same groups of Cole and, and Suzuki and Stutzla who will be, you know, probably three four $400,000 north of that because of the cap. So to answer your question, yes. Mm-hmm. I mean, but it's a timing thing. How do you get to that? You also have to, uh, you know, we, you have a cluster of players. They have a, the same cluster of players. You discuss the, each point and what makes sense, what doesn't make sense. But at the end of the day, sometimes timing is a big, you know, it's a big, big factor. Um, one of the, oh, first of all, what was important? I mean, I probably should have asked this right off the start because we're talking about a player, um, not mm-hmm. necessarily the system and the negotiation. What What was important to Cole Caulfield? through all of this in like your initial discussions about an extension, like what was important to the player here? I probably should have asked that originally. 
Yeah, no, he, he really wanted to be in Montreal. Uh, wasn't afraid to go long-term. Long-term could have been six, seven, or eight. Um, those were important points. Loves it there. Uh, he found a good good spot for himself. Knows that they're – I mean, re- no rebuilding isn't the right word. They're uh, under construction, you know, perhaps. Like, they have, you know, they have good pieces <laughs> and they're building around. <laughs> yeah. So uh, yeah. he felt very good about that. And then you look at – his production, uh, let's not forget he had surgery also. And I uh, give Montreal credit, too, because they started talking to us right right before he went under the knife. So uh, those were, were, were points. And, and, and also we believe Cole could, you know, generate revenues off the ice in Montreal. He's in a great market. Uh, you know, we checked all the boxes where he's happy at the end of the day. And so uh, wants to continue there and hopefully uh, win a cup there. You know, we um we continue to hear about players that want to play in no tax states. Like we all understand the idea here. Like players have a very limited window to make as much money as possible uh, to set their families up, and what they'd like to do, obviously, is is maximize their earning. And we hear a lot about players wanting to go to no tax states, whether it's you know Florida or Texas or Nevada, Tennessee, etc. We keep hearing about you know that's that's attractive to players. Um, the province of Quebec is quite the opposite, uh, as we all know. And I know there are a lot of incentives off the ice where players can make uh, a lot of money if they're successful. Does that? I'm curious. Does that offset? what would be a, a no-tax state situation for another player, i.e., uh, I'm going to play in a, in, a, in, a, in a state, in a province, rather, that's heavily taxed, but my earning potential mm-hmm. is bigger because of what Montreal, the Canadians, are as an organization. Somewhat. I mean, for, for an American citizen living in Canada, playing in Canada, you have also the RCA plan, and also uh, European, so... Um, which uh, they do take advantage of, you know, players. So it's not the same as playing in Florida or or, or Texas or, or Nevada, for that matter. But but you could, if it's done properly, you could you could save an extra fifteen percent. And um, so so instead of being the you know the typically typical uh, fifty two tax range tax bracket, and again, don't quote me on on, on precisely on on the numbers, but essentially you right. could you could save an extra 15%. So is it a factor? Yeah, it could become a factor, uh but if you are actually like I said a non-Canadian resident, there's certain ways you can kind of go around it a little bit. Uh without venturing too deep into that, um the non-state tax they definitely have an advantage on on UFAs or players are about to sign and sell away their UFA years, definitely. Definitely. Um, I, I want to ask about another one of your clients. We'll, we'll park the conversation about Cole Caulfield. I want to ask about Jack Eichel because uh, I held my breath. I think a lot of people held their oh. breath uh, last night watching that game and watching him get hit by Matthew Kachuk. I'll, I'll be honest with you, Pat, and now that he's okay, we can you know, talk freely about it. I, I was concerned about the neck right away and uh. the ADR and Dr. Pris- like That was my first thought. And then I saw him go off and he was holding his shoulder and I thought, okay, at least it's not the neck. It still doesn't look good, but at least it's not the neck. Mm-hmm. And then he popped out there for the third period, and I was I was happily, I think we all were happily shocked uh, that Jack Eichel was out there, set up Jonathan Marshall, so beautiful play, and Vegas ends up, you know, really doing a doing a number on Florida last night. What went through your mind when you saw that hit? Oh, 
I um, I was in Vegas actually Saturday. I was at the game at the, the dinner with Dr. Prosmac before the game, and we we're talking about about that. And I oh, saw Dr. Wow. Lindsay. I saw Dr. Lindsay as well, who had a lot to do with this whole case, you know, uh, before and then, and after the surgery. And um, right when it happened yesterday, I. I I felt the same way you you just described, and I thought about the ADR, the neck, the spine. I texted Jay Millett, the the specialist for the uh, the Golden Knights. He replied immediately within two minutes that it wasn't um, it was just a you know short of breath, and he should be okay. I said, "Wow, I felt great about that." Texted his father. And then I saw Jack on the ice setting up uh, March for for a goal and uh, felt great. So, um, yeah, I mean, I but but again, I was talking to Mark Lindsay this morning about this, and Mark's been treating him a lot, and 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 he was saying that he was able to take the impact. If you looked at the impact, I mean, he became like like Jello or butter, so to speak. He kind of. You know, he felt he tripped into Kachuk, and and he hit a wall. Yeah. <laughs> it was it was definitely a strong impact. But he really, um, he, he he's very flexible, very flexible. If you look at his body twisting, which is not a good scene. But uh, anyway, the yeah. the impact was very severe, and he was able to get up. And uh, no, I uh, I felt the same way you did, and uh, I was so happy to see him back on the ice. And I texted with him after the game. I'm in Buffalo now for the combine, watching on TV. But uh, felt great that uh, he was able to yeah get back on his feet. You know, I, I I think we're past the point now of, you know, wondering about ADR and it's going to become, and that's that for our listeners and viewers, that's artificial disc replacement. Um, Jack Eichel was the pioneer in the NHL. It's been used in, in other sports, whether it's football, whether it's MMA. Jack Eichel, though, was the first uh, to do it in, in the NHL. And we've seen subsequent uh, players, you know, Tyler Johnson uh, is one of them. And I suspect that there'll, there will be others. But every time we, we see a situation like this, you know, I can't help but but wonder whether this is another victory lap for that type of surgery for players instead of the, the fusion listen we all understand how controversial it was and how there was a a chill between uh, Eichel and the Buffalo Sabres because of it but he he dug in his heels and he wanted to take care of of his his health himself um mm-hmm. did it feel again like this is like an, a further victory lap for ADR well, absolutely. I mean, you see, there's such an impactful hit yesterday, and he bounced back and and came back and played, finished the game, and he's feeling good today. Uh, again, it was a uh, another knock on wood, another another test uh, of this, uh, you know, um, complicated surgery. I wouldn't say complicated because yeah, it was a complicated case because it was first in hockey. It was never uh, no no other players uh, yeah. prior to Jack were approved to play, uh, clear to play. It was a fusion, but like you mentioned, now there's uh, two or three more players, and there's going to be more and more to come. And uh, he was t- definitely tested yesterday by far, by far. Yeah. Mm-hmm. You know, I'll, I'll, there, as you know, pal, like there were a lot of players watching that situation really closely. And there yeah. were a lot of players that, like, I'll just be blunt, like wondered about their union and how much, you know, uh, how much uh, domain over their own bodies they had surrendered. Um, yeah. what were the, if you could recall some of the conversations that, that you would have had maybe with other players that Jack had as well. I know there are a lot of players that were surprised that, 
You know, this was a decision that ultimately rested with the team. And listen, Jack had to find a team that was that was cool with him going under the uh, going the uh, artificial disc replacement routes. What were some of the conversations that you or Jack had with other players at that time? Well, it was kind of, I wouldn't say it's a loophole in the CBA, but it's something that we didn't really pay much attention in the past because usually you get, you know, second opinion, third opinion. And for the most part, you get things done. You find the right doctor, the right procedure, and you move on. But this was very unique. He was a, an advocate. He was adamant about it. He had to convince a lot of people. Um, but also, let not, let's not forget, he had Fifty million left on his contract. Like sometimes, if he if it was a yeah. case where perhaps he had like a, a year left at one and a half or two million dollars, uh, it would have been perceived or handled a, a, a different, different way. So we immediately, excuse me, immediately paid more attention because it became such a, um, a public case and, and a heavy case, and the league was involved, the PA was involved. Um, we had a panel of what eight doctors uh, that were retained by the PA in the league, and most of them, if not all, if not all of them, were against the ADR. We had to go outside the box. We had to go outside the box, and the more time we this prolonged, um, the more Jack became at risk of something further to occur to him. Further, like like more. Mm-hmm. You know, like what if he gets hit by a car, uh, you know, rear-ended, sorry, by a car, and then his spine, that, you know, because there was yeah. some, so much pressure on his spine. So so um, I assume that um, it's going to be uh, discussed here with Marty Walsh in the, in, the, in the league going forward. There's no doubt in my mind that's going to be something that's going to be uh, discussed, discussed deeply going forward. Um Fortunately, it took probably a case like this in order to to bring it to to attention, like like the Titanic, so to speak. You know, I mean, it was it was a, it was a heavy <laughs> file, very very heavy file. I yeah. so proud to see him doing well, feeling good, and and playing at the level that he's playing. It's fabulous. Well, he's playing great. Um, like we're talking, you know, Consmite Trophy great here around Eichel. I know there's still you know at least two more games to go here, but still like. Eichel's, uh, Eichel's put on a real show, as has another client of yours, Jonathan Marcheseau. And one of the things that we talked about, and I don't know how candid Marcheseau will ever be about this, but I would have to imagine that a series for the Stanley Cup against the Florida Panthers, for the obvious reasons, has to be extra spicy for Jonathan Marcheseau, considering how he was one of the players not protected in the expansion draft, which, as it turns out, turned out to be one of the best things uh, for Jonathan mm-hmm. Marcheseau's career. But is that is that part of the, the motivation here for Marcheseau? Has he ever talked about that as well? This is extra spicy to him? He hasn't. He hasn't. Um, but everything's been challenging for for March in his career. I don't know if I recall, he hasn't. He didn't. Never got drafted. Uh, he bounced around. He played the minors for years. He's uh, he, he's not a six foot two winger. You know, he's a small guy, and everything's a challenge. Everything is always a challenge, and always to prove himself all the time, all the time. And he's. Uh, He's, uh, he's having an outstanding uh, playoff run here, and he's a confident guy. And, yeah, there's always – talking to, to March, there's always a little chip, you know, like I got to prove it. I got to prove – I will prove it. Like it's been is, – is, it's always going to be like that, yeah. I guess. And that's what makes him so special. 
he's really been remarkable uh, and, and a lot of fun to watch. And that line has been exceptional. Let me, I've only got a couple of minutes left with you here, Pat. I want, I want yeah. to ask you about uh, two players who are, who are joined because of Chicago and, and their history and Pat Kane and the hip resurfacing um, and yep. Jonathan Taves. And we all know he has a, a decision to, to make as well. Um, what can you share about um, the Patrick Kane and Jonathan Taves, two key clients uh, of yours and their future? Yeah, yeah. Well, future at one point they got to be Hall of Famers, but uh, yeah, uh, Patrick uh, had a really yeah. successful um, um, hip resurfacing. Uh, it was due. It was time. It was the right thing. It was the right decision. So he'll take the the, the proper time to recover, and then we'll we'll, we'll focus on on where he's going to go and all that. I'm very confident of the outcome there. Uh, and John is doing well. He's doing very well. Um, he's got some decisions to make, and and we'll see uh, if and when. But I spoke to him last week, and he was very going in the right direction. Very happy, and um, uh, it's going to be heavy, heavy six weeks, I guess, between the draft, free agency, and and all of that. So it's going to be a big summer ahead. But but both of them are doing well. Uh, you're right, both on their way to the Hall of Fame when their careers uh, wrap up after the obligatory waiting period. Uh, Pat, I know you're busy. Thanks so much for stopping by today uh, to share some of your Thanks, expertise, uh, both with the uh, with the Cole Caulfield contract and everything else, and specifically the uh, the Jack Eichel situation where, you know, here's the, the test case for ADR uh, in the NHL, and it might be him raising the Stanley Cup over his head. And when he was in his dispute with the Buffalo Sabres and could barely lift the hockey stick over his head, it might end up being a Stanley Cup after after the ADR. We'll see what happens here. Pat, thanks as always for stopping by. Much appreciated. Thanks. Thanks so much, Jeff. Uh, Pat Brisson is the co-head of CAA's hockey division. He represents, amongst other players, uh, uh, Jack Eichel, uh, who we talked about. Cole Caulfield, who signed his contract extension yesterday uh, with the Montreal Canadiens, Patrick Kane, Jonathan Taves, Jonathan Marcheseau. Uh, there is uh, an enormous client list, whether it's Nathan McKinnon or Anse Kopitar or a guy in Pittsburgh who wears 87, the longtime captain, the Mount Rushmore guy. Um, John Tavares uh, as well. So a uh, long list of clients for, uh, for Pat Brisson. He handles uh, a lot of money for a lot of players in the NHL. Uh, let's bring Maddie back on here. Coming up, bottom of the hour, Scott Lachlan from uh, NHL Network Radio. Uh, I held my breath when I saw that one, that hit, and surprised that it was uh, nothing more than just he was really winded, uh, according to Millette in, in Vegas. Uh, that was a scary moment yesterday and you know when it when it first happened it, it did look like it did look like there was a toe pick and right away when you go back and you look at the video there was a slight toe pick on the left skate and he kind of falls into the hit and falls into the shoulder of of Matthew Kachuk that was as much as that was an exciting game last night there were a couple of frightening moments and that was that was top of the list yeah I'm watching and I'm going the first thing that you think of is everybody's going to complain that it's a dirty hit because that's where all of our minds go now. It's it not. was not a dirty hit at all. It was no, no, no. it was as no, clean as you can probably get at that speed, you know, in that in that moment. And I just when the thing that got me was the face that Jack Eichel made after the hit when you saw him skating to the bench, and you just go, "Oh boy, that that's not a face that you make when you know everything is okay, or you know it's not something. It it felt that it was going to be really serious." And the fact that he came out for the yeah. third, I'm going, is this real life? Now, there's also something to be said about, obviously, he was, he, it, 
he was probably just winded because he came back for the third. I really thought even yeah. if he was okay, that Bruce Cassidy was going to say, maybe we just kind of, the game's well in hand at that point. It's maybe you just kind of take it's a rest. Four, I think it was like, four, yeah. four nothing at that point. I think it was four yeah. nothing at that point. Yeah, just take a rest and, you know, everything will be fine. And then lo and behold, Florida scores whatever it was 15 seconds into the third period. I'm going, oh, okay, Legel maybe Jack Eichel does need to play. <laughs> so, but yeah, the my first inclination when yeah. I saw the hit was, I think Jack Eichel might be out for the rest of the playoffs. That's what, that's what the first thing that came to my mind. Uh, I was my first thing came out my to my mind was this is going to be an audit on because there are still some people that are vehemently against um, artificial disc replacement and very much favor um, the disc fusion, uh, which has always been you know the the way that traditionally things have been done in the uh, in the in the National Hockey League that this was going to be an audit one way or the other, uh, and uh, that that was my first thought. But then when he came up and he kind of saw him wiggle his head a little bit i thought okay he's all right like at least his his neck is okay don't know about the shoulder don't know about any other upper extremity but at least it looked like his neck and spine were okay um that was my first thought there it does seem as if and i know he hasn't scored in what is it eight games it's um you know shana mentioned this on the uh on, in the a block that he's He's a one-man zone entry machine. Like, there are some players, Austin Matthews is great at it, Connor McDavid, just when they have the puck and they're entering the zone, they just make it look so simple. Like, oh, yeah, zone entries are easy. Zone entries are not easy in the NHL. Zone entries are really hard. Like, teams spend a lot of time protecting the blue line and making sure that zone entries, specifically with possession, are difficult to achieve. Eichel does this consistently and makes it look effortless and the points are still piling up that line is humming he's making great plays he gets zone uh he's playing well defensively i know that there's a you can make a lot of noise around marcia so you can make a lot of more noise uh around mark stone i think you make a lot of noise recently about the goaltender aiden hill but to me still right now and we'll see what happens in the last couple of games here if vegas wins this thing Eichel still consummate trophy to me. What about you? Um, I, if the series keeps going the way that it's going, then I think yes, because I, I really don't think that Aiden Hill has been he's been tested, but I think he he's had bigger tests in these playoffs. Now, having said all that, Jack Eichel is doing literally everything. You just mentioned it. He's literally doing everything that we thought he was going that we were hoping he would do following the surgery but i think he's gotten mm. even better and i know that's kind of crazy to say because before he got hurt he was one of the best players in the world but you talk about adding that two-way game where it's not a liability like he's a guy that you can trust in all situations and the way that he has played it's been elite and how many guys could go that long without scoring a goal in the playoffs and still be considered as the favorite for the Conn Smythe Trophy. It's a it's a very short list because, you know, we always look at goals yeah. and who's got the most game-winning goals and who's got, you know, who scored most recently. Jonathan Marshall has been on a tear, but Jack Eichel, without scoring, has been arguably the best player in these playoffs, and, and that's a testament to how well-rounded his game is now. Uh, I think you also have to throw Alex Petrangelo in that conversation. Uh, 
Well, I mean, the entire blue line, the entire Vegas blue line is just so so punishing and, and devastating and, and mobile. You know, I, I mentioned this on the show yesterday. I think about that great Tom Watt line where he talked about the blue line that he wanted was uh, uh, agile, hostile, virile dancing bears. That's what he, that's his his ideal blue line. That's what that's how he would describe them: uh, agile, hostile, virile dancing bears. I look at the Vegas Golden Knights, and that's them. That is them. Whether it's Petrangelo, Theodore, Martinez, McNabb, Haig, White Cloud, like these guys move the puck. These guys are physical. These guys are large, and at times these guys can be downright nasty and angry and a little bit dirty too and that's okay like the whole blue line's been great for vegas too yeah the the well what i liked about you i think it was you were talking with keith jones about it yesterday just how how big that, that was blue it. line it was, is yeah, it was jonesy and and how big that blue line i know is but he go ahead i was gonna say like we we tend to to get away from that now where a lot of the a lot of blue lines now. There's room for one small player that can wheel. I don't know that there's room for two, but when it comes to like if you have a decision to make and you have two mobile defenders that can um, that that can wheel the puck and can move the puck and get the puck out of the zone and anchor a power play and all those all those things one is six foot three one is five foot ten which one are you going with or five foot eleven which one are you going with because as much as we want to pretend and I shouldn't say pretend as much as we want to acknowledge that the game is changing and the game is different now I don't know. This is still this is still a sport, and a lot of sports like this. Baseball is like this. Um, this still is a sport that favors large individuals. Now, I don't know if that's going to change anytime soon. There's room for smaller it, players, certainly. I just don't think you can have a whole team of them. But you can no. have a whole team of big players. No, because at the end of the day, when, when it matters the most, you still need to be physical. You still need to be able to clear bodies in front of the net. You need to be able to play in the corners and, and win puck battles. And, and all those little things matter, especially when you get to this time of year because the game does tend to slow yeah. down a little bit. Uh, the physicality is still there. We know that, you know, I mean, in, in the case of Florida, their over-physicality is not working, but... Vegas has guys that don't back down and not, I think not that smaller guys don't back down, but I mean, when you look at when, when you were the one day you were in, I can't remember. I guess you were in Vegas that day or was the week before, whatever it is. I don't know. You take a lot of days. I'm kidding. Um, the, I was talking to to Daniel, (laughs) I was talking to Daniel Negreanu and he said, when you look at the pair of Nick Haig and Zach Whitecloud, he says, that is the best five, six pair that you have in the NHL. And he says, and I don't think it's remotely close. He's a little bit biased, but having said all that, it matters to have guys like that, that are mobile, that can, that can still play physical. That, that part is not lost in the game. And I think people just try, everybody wants to get ahead of the trend, but sometimes what works is what's right in front of you. And that's having big defensemen who can move the puck and are mobile. And Mm -hmm. they just happen to be physical as well, because that's important right now. So uh, I was on the uh, Sportsnet 590, the fan morning show this morning with Ailish and Justin, and we were talking about Bruce Cassidy. And I was, I was trying to make the point, and let me know if you agree with this or not, that 
this coach specifically fits who the Vegas Golden Knights are. Not recently, but historically. Um, we know Bruce Cassidy from his time coaching the Boston Bruins. Took the Boston Bruins to the Stanley Cup final against the St. Louis Blues. But previous to the experience with the, uh, w- with the Boston Bruins, there was a long time where we never thought that we'd see Bruce Cassidy back in the NHL again. Like he had his experience with the Washington Capitals and then briefly as an assistant with the Chicago Blackhawks. But then after that, he was a minor league coach and a minor league coach for a long, long time. Now, when when Boston uh, piped Claude Julien, uh, he got uh, called up in an interim capacity and ended up keeping the job, and Boston enjoyed a lot of success. But there was an element of he's gone to the minors and we'll never see him again in the NHL. And now, since the Bruins, he's had this second coaching lease on life. Does that fit? the Vegas Golden Knights narrative to you, the not wanted on the voyage guy, not just on the ice, but behind the bench as well. For sure. And, and look at, look at the guys that have been front and center. Well, I mean, you can even talk about Jack Eichel in that conversation because we didn't know what Jack Eichel was going to be like. There was this narrative about him being a bad, a bad captain and this and that and Buffalo. So there was a redemption story Mm -hmm. there as well. You talk about the guy who's scoring seemingly all the goals and Jonathan Marshall. And there's Riley Smith and, and, and William Carlson and William Carrier, who's had an incredible playoff as well. Like there's a lot of those stories with Vegas. And so I, I, I like that you framed it that way because and I'm, I'm biased because Bruce Cassidy comes on this show basically whenever we ask, and he's always very thoughtful with his answers. But, but I think that, I think that it does lend itself to like, sometimes a coach is just the right fit at the right time with a group. And I know you can't have lightning in a bottle all the time, but look, look at the success that they're having in Bruce Cassidy's first year. And so both of these coaches, really, when you talk about Paul Maurice mm-hmm. getting back behind the bench as well, sometimes you just catch lightning in a bottle. And and that's where I, I wonder about other teams looking at their situation going, maybe maybe we are just the, the coach is the difference and we can catch lightning in a bottle, even if it's just for one year, because if you win the cup, it doesn't matter. Yeah. Doesn't matter. And uh, Bruce Cassidy now two wins away. Jack Eichel, remember all the conversation? Oh, you can't win with Jack Eichel. Yeah, Jack Eichel's two wins away from winning the Stanley Cup, and we'll just end that narrative. You can't win with Steve Eiserman. Remember that one? You can't win with Alex Ovechkin. Remember that one? You can't win with Jack Eichel, right? Well, he's two wins away from the Cup. Uh, we'll hit a break. Uh, Scott Lachlan comes up here in a couple of moments from NHL Network Radio, co-host of the morning show there. Um more on this Vegas-Florida series as well, and we'll try to get in a tour around the NHL uh, off the ice as well. Haven't haven't talked a whole lot today about some of the uh, the off-ice, either coaching vacancies um, or the, uh, the Ottawa Senators' sale, which, uh, as Gary Bettman mentioned on the weekend, is, uh, is inching closer, and we're probably weeks away here now. Uh, the commissioner's words, not mine. Don't forget, BOG, June 22nd. Uh, from nearing a completion. Scott Lachlan joins me in moments. Merrick Show continues across the Sportsnet Radio Network simulcast on Sportsnet 360 and Sportsnet Now. Back in a moment. 
more Leafs, more Raptors, more Blue Jays. The Fan Morning Show with Ailish Forfar and Justin Cuthbert. Subscribe and download the show on Apple, Spotify, or wherever you get your podcasts. This is the Jeff Merrick Show on the Sportsnet Radio Network. All right, finishing up strong today, Scott Lachlan, co-host of the Morning Skate on NHL Network Radio, joins me now for more comments on last night's game, the series, and if we have time, a tour and trip around the NHL. Scotty, how are you today? I'm doing well, Jeff. Yourself? Uh, I'm well. Uh, Okay, so here is, and I opened up the show by asking this question. Uh, I'm soliciting theories here, and maybe there's something to this. Maybe there's not. Maybe this is just sports talk radio on a Tuesday afternoon. I'm going to throw it out there for you, Scotty, anyhow. Paul Maurice very much downplayed this when he was asked, but nonetheless, I will ask you. Uh, I threw out the screen cap earlier today of the final face-off from the Florida Panthers, and Brandon Montour is taking the face-off for the Panthers. And, uh, oh, yeah, there's Ekblad, and there's Stahl, and there's Mahora, and there's Forsley. These are five defensemen that are all on the ice for the final draw. Um, my personal theory is this is Paul sending a message to the officials saying, you've thrown out all my forwards. This is all I'm left with. We all know Paul Maurice is, can be subtle and not too subtle at times. Uh, do you have a thought on this one? Is, uh, is, there, a, is there a Scott Lachlan theory uh, behind this one. Do you have any idea what's going on with Paul Maurice on that? Yeah, point? I could buy that, Jeff. I could really buy that. I think he was frustrated by the way that things turned out last night, uh, not only with the game, but as you say, it turned into Oprah's book club, right? Like, you get a 10-minute misconduct, you get a 10-minute misconduct, <laughs> and you get a 10-minute misconduct. Uh, boy, a kid on Halloween probably would, would want as much in terms of Halloween candy uh, as the officials were throwing guys out of the game last night. Look, I understand why they were doing it. They were trying to keep tabs on the game. They didn't want the lid to come off uh, the game itself and for it to devolve into some sort of a, a circus. I didn't really understand the first 10 for Kachuk based upon the hit on Eichel. Uh, and, and even he admitted afterwards, he said, look, for, for one of the 10 minute misconducts that deserved it, the other one I'm not quite sure about. I think we know which one he was talking about. So, uh, yeah, what the heck? They just uh, poke fun uh, a little bit towards the end and say, this is what I'm left with. I've got a real short bench. Enjoy your time out there for the final moments, defenseman. Uh, this is the last time that's ever going to happen. So uh, we'll see what it all means. Probably ultimately nothing going to game three, but it was an interesting way to wrap it up. No question. I thought I saw Jamie Compon putting on his skates. I thought maybe Maurice was going to send him over the, the bench. Take the Ekblad one-timer spot there, Jamie. Uh, what, what did you make of, of last night? Like, I want to get to, to some of the specifics. And, you know, you mentioned the, the Kachuk misconducts. We'll talk about the Eichel hit and Marcia Sow's played and Aiden Hill. But just overall, like, what did you take out of last night, Scotty? Well, I'll tell you what, I mean, you know, the, the the game to me really boiled down to a sequence late in the first period, right, where the Panthers found themselves on the power play. And I think when they went on the power play, Jeff, I think they only had three shots on goal at that point. I think they came out of it with like eight shots on goal. They actually threw everything at Aiden Hill uh, in goal. And that whole sequence there, he was outstanding, I thought, in goal for Vegas. And, you know, whether it's that sequence towards the latter stages of the first period, whether it's going back to game one Saturday night, yeah. Uh, and less than a minute into the period, you know, of course, he makes the, the outstanding paddle save on Nick Cousins. 
he's coming up big at all the right times, I think, right now for the uh, Las Vegas Golden Knights. There's no question about that. Uh, and, and, look, the reality is I think that it just looked like Vegas was rolling. They just looked like the bigger, stronger, faster, quicker team. Uh, they look like the deeper team, as we thought that they would be going in. They've got the better goaltenders so far in the series. Maybe we didn't see that one necessarily coming, despite the fact that Aiden Hill has been, been really playing well, I think, the last couple of weeks. And obviously the power play opportunities that they've been given, they've taken advantage of it, Florida not so much. So I think you add it all up, and you, you throw home ice into the equation where the Panthers can't win in Vegas, and all of a sudden you're looking at a 2 nothing series lead for the Vegas Golden Knights. So, look, they're feeling really good about themselves right now. That doesn't necessarily mean that they go down to FLA Live Arena Thursday and continue to do the same. Florida's going to have an opportunity here to stem the tide. There's no question. Uh, They'd better do it Thursday, as we know, or it's pretty much all but over. Uh, But so far, I mean, based upon what we've seen the first couple of games, Vegas clearly far and away the better team, especially last night where they looked like a juggernaut. Um, really quickly, um, Elliot Friedman just tweeted this one. I'll make sure we, we get it out there. Elliot's on a plane right now and, and tweeting this. There is a, a three-way deal being worked on right now between Columbus, Philadelphia, and Los Angeles. So just for mm. all the listeners and viewers, want to throw that one out there. So that one is being worked on right now. Uh, mm. Columbus with their, their new head coach, Mike Babcock, who takes over in July. Uh, Flyers, new management staff and the Los Angeles Kings uh, have plans. I wonder, listen, I wonder if it's L.A. if there's a goaltender involved in this one, but... Uh, Victor Arvidsson, Jeff? Victor uh, Arvidsson, potentially? Uh, he Ar- Arvidsson is definitely out there. They, they do want to do something with Arvidsson. Mm-hmm. Uh, Freeze tweeting this one. Uh, I believe Provorov will end up in Columbus and Cal Peterson in Philly. Not sure all the pieces. So if Cal Peterson ends up Philly, I know they have big plans for Sam Erson there. Uh, I, and again, I think we're a lot of us, Scotty, we're just doing this off the top of our heads here without making any calls. But yeah. I think a lot of us do wonder about Carter Hart and his future um, with the Philadelphia Flyers maybe getting ahead of ourselves here. But again, Friedman just tweeting this one. Uh, three-way deal, Columbus, Philadelphia, and Los Angeles being worked on. Frege believes Provorov mm. uh, ends up in Columbus. So they'll get two from that draft, Orensky and Provorov. Remember that conversation? Yeah. The better D. Uh, Cal Peterson ending up in Philadelphia. It sounds like there'll be more pieces involved in this one as well. So uh, I, I, personally, I think this is going to be one of the more friskier off-seasons. Yeah. To away from the final. I think this is going to be one of the more friskier off-seasons as we see a whole lot of front offices with new faces uh, and teams that, that need to make moves uh, subsequent. Uh, and this might just be the beginning of something big with both the uh, the Philadelphia Flyers yeah. and the Los Angeles Kings. you have a quick one on this one, Scott? Yeah, yeah. Well, does it? I, I just think about Provorov as almost being that last man standing. I mean, you know, like Sandheim's turned out to be something for sure. But remember a couple of years ago, Jeff, like a handful of years ago, you're talking about the young up-and-coming Philadelphia Flyers defenseman led by Provorov, of course, and Sandheim and Samuel Moran. Uh, you know, God bless him. I mean, he had the injury issues, obviously, that curtailed his career. Philip yeah, Myers yeah. was a guy that was kind of out of left field. You thought he had a real good future as well. Uh, so it's interesting to yep. see that, you know, it really hasn't materialized for the Flyers on the back end the way that they would have anticipated some five years ago. You, you know what I thought really, really hurt Provorov? And uh, again, when this, when the book is written on this generation of the Philadelphia Flyers, I, there was one moment that I think really hurt this team, maybe even a lot more than we realized at the time. And it's coming out of the bubble uh, where Matt Niskanen said, I'm done. 
I'm not doing mm-hmm. this anymore. Yeah. I'm, I'm retiring. Yeah. And that like uh, Ivan Provorov was was never the same after Matt Niskanen mm-hmm. retired. They brought in Ryan Ellis to kind of be the the new Matt four Niskanen games. for Ivan Provorov. Yep. Four and, games, right? Four games, and mm-hmm. and and the injury, and that was it. I I think that was the one that that Provorov never really recovered from. And and you're right. I remember whether it was watching Provorov with the Brandon Wheat Kings, uh, Kelly McCrimmon's team. Uh, or with the Philadelphia Flyers. I, I, th- I think that Victor Hedman is probably the best at long bomb tape-to-tape passes from blue liners, but Provorov mm-hmm. was right there with that super long stick of his. <laughs> I don't know how long that thing is. It's huge. Um, but I, I'm with you. Like you, Once upon a time, we were looking at Provorov and that entire yeah. Flyers defense and saying, woof, fine. Because yeah, I'm just going to go on a tangent here. The one thing, Scotty, if you look historically at the Philadelphia Flyers, I know we always talk about, oh, they've never been able to get the goaltender and everybody had to get the, get the goaltender and they, they took Van Beesbrook over Cujo and why would they do that, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. The one area that the Philadelphia Flyers had never drafted and developed and it went all the way up to this generation was a blue liner. Mm-hmm. Like if you, all, the, all their, whether it was, you know, Pronger we, we think of, but like all of their, all their blue liners were all trades and free agent signings. Like up until this generation, this team goes back to 67 here, folks. They never drafted and developed an elite level blue liner ever. Look at the 87 team. McCrimmon, mm-hmm. uh, Howe, uh, Marsh, Crossman. We're not looking at draft picks here. Like every time they had a blue line, it was always by acquisition, not by drafting. We thought this era yeah. was going to be different. Well, and you look at Gostas Bear, too. Remember when Gostas Bear burst on the scene and everybody said, Ghost, yes. you know, he's the next big thing. And yeah. he was voted, Jeff, you remember, he was voted as the most popular athlete in Philadelphia, like the top athlete. And that goes for the Sixers and the Phillies and the Eagles. He was the guy that was all the rage. And what a great start he had to his career there. And his tenure in Philadelphia certainly didn't last. Kind of bounced around a little bit now, as we know. Uh, but you're right. It just hasn't really been a great position of stability. I guess Jury's still out on a guy like Cam York. Uh, you wonder where you go from there. Uh, but, yeah, it's it's not necessarily materialized the way they anticipated. Uh, okay, back to the final. A uh, little detour there. So, again, if you're just joining us, three-way deal with Columbus, Philadelphia, and L.A. being worked on. A couple of the primaries here. Provorov, this is all from Elliot, by the way, Friedman. Uh, Provorov ending up in Columbus. Peterson in Philadelphia. We'll see where the other pieces fall. Um, you have a thought on Ivan Barbashev? And, you know, Ivan Barbashev, we could think of, you know, last year with the Sam Girard uh, situation. Like, he is an intense, intense, skilled player. Um, the, the deeper that Vegas goes and the closer they get to the Stanley Cup, it's really hard not to say he was, you know, that, that he wasn't the best trade deadline acquisition of, of anybody. Great move by, by Kelly McCrimmon. Uh, I know you can say Matias at home, and I'll, I'll listen to that. But what Barbashev's been able to do on that line with this team and two Radko Gudis and Anthony DeClaire with mm-hmm. the, the Peter Forsberg tribute last night, the cold shoulder, uh, as they call it. Barbashev has been full value. Do you have a, do you have a thought on him? Well, I give you credit on our show this morning, Jeff, because you've always been out in front of this. I mean, from the get-go, from the pickup, you said, hey, this guy could be a huge difference maker for this team, and uh, you were bang on when it came to Barbashev, too. I just look at Barbashev as as a more skilled version of William Carrier, (laughs) like just a a big-bodied guy who's a bull out there on the ice, but he's got a little bit more skill, clearly, than Carrier does, and we've started to see this really come to the fore, where he can produce multiple points in a game. We saw last night, like we say, with Buddhist trying to make the hit 
it was he who got the worst of it, and I hope he's okay to play because he's such an integral member on the yeah. back end for the Florida Panthers, no question. That would be a huge loss for the Panthers if he can't go the rest of the way, or at least on Thursday anyway for game three. Uh, but you're right, Barbashev has made all the difference for that team. He fits like a glove. Uh, he's hearing the sounds of cash registers going off, no doubt, in his mind right now <laughs> uh, because he's going he's gonna to get paid. He's going to get a massive pay hike like Aiden Hill yeah. as well, and, and that'll be a problem for another day for Kelly McCrimmon and George uh, McPhee to deal with. And Bill Foley, ultimately, that's where the buck is going to stop is with ownership. But, yeah. yeah, you couldn't have really forecasted, and I know you did, uh, a much better fit for Barbashev than with the Vegas Golden Knights. He's been such a difference maker, and, you know, he's one of 12 guys, it seems like, that can beat you game in and game out with the Vegas Golden Knights we spoke about the advantage that they had in terms of depth to start the series and I think that's really come to the fore I'll tell you what I'm I'm glad you mentioned Bill Foley because once upon a time uh, Bill Foley said we're going to win the Stanley Cup within six years and we (laughs) all laughed we all laughed I'll tell you what absolutely not 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 only has this been impressive on the ice what Vegas has done but you look at, you know, what this meant for expansion to Seattle and their success. And you look at how successful the AHL team in Henderson is and how successful the AHL team. Listen, Coachella Valley is playing in the American Hockey League final mm-hmm. year. They're playing against the Hershey Bears, the youngest team playing against the oldest team uh, in the league. And that success story is well told. I think Coachella's revenue earner number one in the American League. And I think Henderson's number two. Like on, on a lot of different levels here, the latest this round of expansion has been a home run. And now that we're talking about a billion dollars, Scotty, a billion dollars for the Ottawa Senators, the success of Vegas has attracted, I would imagine, a lot of people to hockey. And Elliot and I sat down with Ryan Smith, Salt Lake, uh, Utah Jazz owner, trying to bring the NHL to Salt Lake. Mm -hmm. There are a lot of people now that want to get in. And I think we're going to start hearing more about expansion because what Vegas has done and the way that the NHL has the expansion model, I don't want to say it's guaranteed instant success, but you don't wander for 10 years. You know, I remember asking Doug McLean once who, you know, went through with with Columbus. I said, what do you do when you're done your expansion draft? And Doug said, I go back to my office and I try to trade all the players that I just drafted so I can get down to what's going to be my real team. Those days are gone. Like, and I can't help but think of how important Vegas has been, Scotty, both on the ice, and they might win the cup, and also off the ice financially for the league, not just the NHL, but the American Hockey League as well. Yeah, I think so. And look, I've always looked at the National Football League, Jeff, as being the only Teflon league out there. It doesn't matter what they do. It seems like the stands are always filled. They've got the the, the billion, billion, billion dollar TV contract and, you know, a new CBA between the Players Association and the league. So to me, that's a Teflon league. It doesn't matter what they do. It's a license to print money. I think every other professional sports league at certain points has had fires to put out. And you look at the NHL, to your point right now, and previously you would have said maybe South Florida is still a concern, right? You know, the stands are empty the whole bit. The second half of the season, the stands have, generally speaking, been full. Uh, Certainly the last couple of months they've been full because this team's gone on a run. I, I mean, are we at the point right now? Jeff, and you talked about a billion dollars for the Senators a couple of years ago. You might have thought that there was a problem in Ottawa. Are we at the point now where we're saying that maybe Arizona is the only fire that has to be extinguished by the National Hockey League? I think we are at that point. Uh, and I think that's a great, great 
uh, indication as to where the league's at health-wise and how the, the revenues have been grown back and the commissioner talking about a $6 billion business and the whole bit, too. So uh, to your point, things are really looking up. There's interest to get in beyond just the 32. Uh, we know the expansion fee would be quite high. It's certainly a lot more than a relocation fee uh, is going to put back into the owner's pocket. So, again, last-ditch resort would be to move the Coyotes from Arizona. And the commissioner, of course, in this conversation with Ron McLean uh, on Saturday night did admit that, you know, time is becoming of the essence. There's no question about that. Uh, sure. But really, I think that's the only fire in the National Hockey League right now to try to put out. And that's what do you do with the Arizona Coyotes. Beyond that, though, everything is really looking up. Yeah. Uh, and you know what? That is a really interesting thought, Scotty. And the first thing off the top of my mind, and we only got 60 seconds for this, is does this financial success in the NHL with expansion and how much teams like the Ottawa Senators are going for now, does this now mean that the NHL is lockout proof? Financially, mm. there is zero incentive to go through another lockout. Like to your point, like sure, there's a fire in Arizona. But if you're an owner in this league, looking at how the CBA works right now and how the players don't participate in any of these sales, Mm -hmm. like this is all going to the owners here and the expansion goes to the owners here and what is defined as HRR, are we now at a space where we say the NHL is lockout proof? Yeah, boy, I hope you're right, Jeff. I hope you're right. And as we know, the big sticking point for the players over the years has been escrow. So make it less or make it go away entirely. Put money in the owner's pockets, have that 50-50 split, everybody goes home happy. So, again, we'll find out what happens in Arizona, but boy, oh boy, yeah, for both the players and the owners right now, they've got to be feeling good about where the game's at. I love our conversations. Scotty, thanks as always for stopping by, pal. Have a great rest of your day. Enjoy the rest of the final, pal. Anytime. Thanks, Jeff. It's one of the smartest right there, Scott Lachlan, uh, co-host of the Morning Skate on NHL Network Radio. Uh, always appreciate it when him or his co-host, Gord Stalick, stop by the show. Uh, thank a few people here. Pat Prisson from CAA talking about Eichel and Caulfield. Uh, Greg Cronin was really good, and we should really have him back. Uh, I have a feeling he's going to be a real media darling Anaheim Ducks head coach. Thanks for stopping by. Shannon Goldman from The Athletic, thank you as well. Matt Marchese, Lance Kennedy, Jen Rolnick. That's the real brain trust of this show. Back in 22 hours.